Is our fate not unique? And is it not common to all of us Jews? Has not the time come to convert Jewish solidarity from a Gentile myth into a Jewish reality? So big an ass. And solidarity is what Moses sought. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 50. Reuben, God, and Jewish Responsibility. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of Milt Rubenfeld, an American Jew from Peekskill, New York. He had the distinction of serving as a pilot in World War II in several different capacities. He had wished to fight the Nazis, but America originally was not yet in the war, and so he started with the Royal Air Force before returning to fly and fight for the United States. After the war, Rubenfeld became one of the first pilots in the nascent Air Force of the State of Israel, and his own story embodies in both an amusing and inspiring way, how he and others answered a question asked by Moses many millennia before. As Israel approaches the Holy Land, they engage in battle with two kings, Sihon of the Amorites and Og Monarch of the Bashan. Both kings are defeated, and, with the divinely declared destination in sight, two tribes suddenly stun Moses with a request to stay right there on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Numbers 32, verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. Now the children of Reuben and the children of God had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Yetzer and the land of Gilad, that, behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of God and the children of Reuben came and spoke unto Moses, to Elazar the priest, and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. And they said, If we have found favor in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession. Bring us not over the Jordan. Let us attempt, ladies and gentlemen, to imagine what must have gone through Moses' mind at this moment. And I believe that this point was said by Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein, who heard it in turn from his mother, Dr. Tova Lichtenstein, though I'm expressing it here in my own words. Let us look at it from Moses' perspective. His deepest desire was to enter the land of Israel a dream denied to him. The Almighty will not even accede to his plaintive plea to merely cross the Jordan and look at the land that is being bestowed to the people. He can see the land from an overlook, but he cannot ever step onto its sacred soil. And here we have two tribes who are about to realize the end goal of the Exodus, the arrival in the Promised Land. And they suddenly say, you know what? We're good, thanks. What Moses most wants and cannot have, Reuben and God, take utterly for granted, and do not appear interested. But Moses, as a leader, cannot place his personal desires at the heart of his response to them. Instead, what he utters in verse 6 are words that resound through Jewish history. And Moses said unto the children of God and the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and you shall stay here? In Hebrew, Ha'achichem yavo l'milchama v'yatem teshvu po. In other words, will you let your brethren risk their lives without your own effort to preserve their well-being? Moses, in other words, accuses God and Reuben of lack of identification with the danger faced by the larger whole, lack of interest in the well-being of their brothers and sisters, a seeming sense of self-sufficiency. God and Reuben rush to assure Moses that they will fulfill their military obligation, and their promise 
provides context, perhaps, for why the previous passages in this portion of Numbers discuss oaths, the bond of one's word. They declare that they will first join their brethren in battle, and only after that will they return to this land on the other side of the Jordan. Note carefully their words in verse 16. And they came near unto him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our cattle, and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be ready armed to go before the children of Israel, until we have brought them unto their place. And our little ones shall dwell in the fortified cities, because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return unto our houses, until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. Reuben and God will provide for their households and then head into battle, only returning after the war is won. Their promise appears admirable, but the sages sense something is still amiss, and it can be found in the order of the phrases that they utter. First, we will build sheepfolds, meaning pens, for our cattle. And then, they say, they will build cities for our children. There seems to be more of a focus on property and prosperity, the cattle, than on progeny. Indeed, the cattle was the very reason that they requested to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. In response, Moses agrees to the offer, but the sages take careful note not only of the words that he says, but also the order in which these words are placed. Verse 24, Build you cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do that which hath proceeded out of your mouth. In other words, Moses says, I'm willing to take your terms. If you fight with the rest of Israel, then this land will be yours. But remember, he implicitly adds, what is truly important. Children over prosperity. Continuity is the truest treasure. Thus, does Moses ingrain within Israel something that reverberates throughout the generations, something that can be seen in a striking statistical phenomenon today, which is that as the birth rate plummets in most Western-style democracies, Israel is the only such country that continues to have a large number of children. This fact has most recently attracted the attention of Ross Douthat, whose fascinating book, The Decadent Society, describes the stagnation that, he argues, Western wealth and achievement has to some extent produced. He writes, quote, Amid all of our society's material plenty, one resource is conspicuously scarce. That resource is babies, end quote. In other words, he believes that our technological sophistication and the internet above all allows us to perpetuate atomistic existences, to live virtually rather than to truly live. And the result for Douthat is a society that does not focus enough on its future, whose own success is a source of stagnation. But there is, Douthat further notes, one society that has defied what he considers decadence. Israel, he writes, is, quote, the only rich, highly educated country where birth rates leveled off well above replacement instead of just below it, and then actually rose again, end quote. Douthat theorizes that the constant endangerment faced by Israel is the cause of their demographic strength. As he puts it, quote, Israel's distinctive identity, history, and geopolitical position, perpetually threatened, perpetually mobilized, creates very different attitudes toward the self-sacrifice involved in parenthood than the less existentially shadowed culture of other rich societies. End quote. There may be something to his explanation, but it may just be that the love of children is ingrained in the fiber of the culture of the Jewish state. 
There is a striking, unexpected reflection of this in the televised visit of the comedian Conan O'Brien to Israel, when he takes a tour of Waze, which provides GPS guidance to drivers all over the world, an embodiment of Israel's technological influence and achievement. And as O'Brien enters the area where the programming is done, all of a sudden he hears and then sees a child just sitting, playing there on the floor, because this cutting-edge company in Israel was entirely fine with one of the Waze workers bringing his or her baby to work, without any sense that it hindered the professionalism of the place. O'Brien jokes, they're putting children to work. There are laws. But in truth, the love of children, the comfort with children, the celebration of children, highlights precisely for whom the state of Israel is supposed to be flourishing. Or as Moses said, build you cities for your little ones, and only then pens for your flocks. And Reuben and God appear to understand the lesson, for they respond to Moses with their original clauses now reversed. Verse 26. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our cattle shall be there in the cities of Gilead, but thy servants will pass over every man that is armed for war. Moses thus implicitly emphasizes the centrality of children to the future of Israel. But the other lesson of which he speaks, of Israelite interdependence, of covenantal responsibility, that Moses makes eloquently explicit. Reuben and God must battle with their brethren or the moral and spiritual stain will be dire. Verse 23, But if ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and know ye your sin that will find you out. It is a curious phrase that Moses utters. The Hebrew here hard to translate. It somehow seems to say that if these two tribes do not do as they promise, do not fight side by side with their brothers, then their sin will somehow stalk them and condemn them in the future. Thus does this great leader, who himself cannot enter the land, ensure through his strong language that these two tribes bind their very souls to their brothers that will be fighting for the land and dwelling in the land. And Moses' stringency in invoking this charge, his reference to the sin of disunity, stalking the possible sinners, also highlights an implicit and profoundly prescient fear, because the truth is that the Jewish people throughout the ages will not always be united. Jerusalem fell during the Second Temple because of the infighting within the city that undid the Jewish defenses against the Romans attacking the city outside it. Thus, Moses' words set a standard and a warning for the future. Menachem Begin, in his memoir, White Nights, describes his time spent in a Soviet prison called Lukishki during World War II. He became friends with two Gentile cellmates who confessed to him that their deepest desire is that Germany attack the Soviet Union. Then they would be released to fight for Poland. Begin also wanted to be released, but he told his cellmates that he would rather stay in prison than have the Nazis attack Russia because, as he said, quote, I can't forget that in the event of a Russo-German war, more millions of Jews are likely to fall into the hands of Hitler, end quote. And Begin writes further, quote, The reply of the prisoners was an explosion of wrath. What you have just said, one of them said, sir, is most characteristic. With you people, everything is decided according to one criterion, what is good for Jews. Actually, the prisoner continued, I was told long ago that there is solidarity among all Jews but you have given me confirmation that you people guard your solidarity under all circumstances, even in prison. That's what he says to Menachem Begin. 
And Begin then reflects in part as follows, quote, What was there for me to reply to their contentions? They both spoke of Jewish solidarity as if it were a crime, as if they were talking about a conspiracy, something evil. For heaven's sake, writes Begin, I thought to myself, what have the Jews not done to prove that they do not stick together? The divisions among the Jews, the multiplicity of their parties and their trends are proverbial. Begin further adds, and all to no purpose. The fictitious Jewish solidarity exists and will always exist in the minds of others. And if this is the case, I ask myself, writes Begin, has the time not come to strip it of the slur of a crime, the accusation of a conspiracy? Is our fate not unique? And is it not common to all of us Jews? Has not the time come to convert Jewish solidarity from a Gentile myth into a Jewish reality? End quote. So big an ass. And solidarity is what Moses sought so many years before. In these actions on the eastern bank of the Jordan, Moses sets the stage for the way that Jews were called to feel bound to one another. But the final act of Moses' tale here is yet to come. As he bequeaths the land to these two tribes, Moses suddenly adds half of another tribe. Verse 33, And Moses gave unto them, to the children of God and Reuben, and unto half the tribe of Menashe, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sichon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of the Bashan. Where did Menashe come from? Menashe did not ask for this land. And if he's giving the land also to Menashe, why is he giving it to half of Menashe? Why does the other half of Menashe end up on the other side of the Jordan? Moreover, as Rabbi Yaakov Maidan notes, if you study the precise geography of the respective tribal portions, you will see that Menashe's land on the east side of the Jordan ends up larger than that of Reuben and God even as Menashe is also given a large portion of land on the other side of the Jordan. What is Moses doing? Rabbi Medan has his own fascinating suggestion, but perhaps Moses is making Reuben and God subordinate to Menashe, who will have the larger territory on the eastern side. And in dividing Menashe's portion, Moses is ensuring that all those on the east bank will never forget their brethren in the destined promised land in ensuring that the largest tribal territory on one side of the Jordan has half its brethren on the other side of the Jordan. Moses is saying, part of yourselves is bound up in the fate of the Israelites that are not with you, that are not right next to you. Thus, Jewish solidarity is the central message of this incredible tale. And Moses' vision imprints itself on the Jewish spirit and is made manifest throughout Jewish history in remarkable and often unexpected ways. Many of you have seen the documentary Above and Beyond, which is about the origins of the Israeli Air Force. It describes how many, if not most, of the first pilots of Israel were not Israelis. We are told of Jews from America, Canada, South Africa, who were trained during World War II to fly and who signed up then to serve in the Air Force of the nascent Jewish state. One of these men was Milt Rubenfeld. On his first mission, Rubenfeld was shot down over the Mediterranean, and he swam ashore. The problem, the documentary tells us, was that the Israeli Air Force had not only been kept as a secret from the enemies of Israel, it was also something that was not known about by many Israelis. Thus, as the Israelis on the shore saw a pilot who had been shot down swimming toward them, they assumed that he was Egyptian. 
and so they began shooting at him. Rubenfeld, furthermore, an acculturated American Jew, knew very little Hebrew, so he had to somehow tell them that he was Jewish and fighting for Israel. Thus, while they were firing at him, he reportedly shouted whatever Jewish words occurred to him. In one version of the story, as the bullets rained down on him, he is yelling at them something like, Shabbos gefiltefish! Shabbos gefiltefish! The story, ladies and gentlemen, is striking. What motivated a man who had already served so many years in a war to travel to the other side of the world to risk his life to defend Jews whose language he did not speak, with whom he seemed culturally to have so little in common? Rubenfeld did not intend to stay in the land of Israel. He returned to America after the War of Independence. Why then was he willing to risk his life in this way? The answer, of course, lies in Moses' message. Rubenfeld revealed that thousands of miles away from the Middle East, he was somehow stirred by an incredible sense of responsibility that he and his fellow Air Force pilots reflected, men who had already risked their lives to fight for the Allies, who could so easily have embraced retirement, but yet somehow heard deep within them Moses' voice saying, Shall your brethren go to battle while you stay here? We know the answer these pilots gave, an answer that revealed how a few words uttered thousands of years ago on the east bank of the Jordan remained, generations later, a clarion call in their souls. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.